no two groups were wider apart in ideology and action and politics than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the traditionalists, the conservatives, the legalists, the rules keepers. They believed the right things. They believed in God. They believed in the work of the Holy Spirit, maybe not like we believe His work. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles and the resurrection and the supernatural. But they hid all of these great doctrines under the sterile grave clothes of a ritualistic tradition. They were the self-appointed watchdogs of a traditional religion that expressed itself in the keeping of rules and the observing of customs. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the rationalists. They did not believe in angels or spirits. They didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus or the resurrection. They did not believe in the supernatural element of religion. They um, made religion just a matter of keeping an ethical code. But there was one common passion that drew these two groups together. It was their desire to be rid of Jesus. The Pharisees saw Him as irreligious because He swept away their tradition. And the Sadducees saw Him as irrational because He kept insisting on the spiritual things. And so they formed this coalition of criticism and they set a trap for Jesus. And they baited the trap with a lure that was designed to catch everybody standing nearby. They asked Him, Lord, show us a sign from heaven. Now in that, in that request, they may have meant to imply that they thought that all the signs Jesus had been doing were not from heaven, but from some earthly power or source. On one occasion, they did accuse Jesus of casting out demons in the power of Satan himself. But when they asked Jesus for a sign from heaven, they were manifesting a gigantic gall for the two chapters that precede this chapter of where the text is found describe what Jesus did on the day before this one. He fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. He walked on the sea. He healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And verses 30 and 31 of chapter 15 state this, And great multitudes came to Him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others. And they laid them down at His feet, and He healed them so that the multitude marveled as they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And after this He fed the 4,000, and these people had the gall to come to Jesus and ask for some sign from heaven, for some heavenly credential. What more did they need than what they had just seen? But Jesus answered them, and He did so not so much in anger as He did in sorrow. And He talked to them about three signs. 
One of them we recognize, one of them we don't, and one we must. He talked to them about the signs of the weather, the signs of the world, that is, the signs of the times, and then the sign of the way. The sign of the weather we all recognize. Jesus said, you say in the evening it's going to be fair tomorrow because the sky is red. In the morning you say, a storm is coming because the sky is red and threatening. And every sheep herder standing nearby understood that. For these men had a sign, had a saying that they used to understand the weather. They said, red sky at night is a shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning is a shepherd's warning. The weather affects us all. We're always in a battle with the weather. We air condition our homes in the summer to make them cool and we heat them in the winter to make them warm. We build dams to keep the water out and we lay pipe to bring the water in. We construct houses with insulated walls and waterproof roofs. We build storm shelters for our families and windbreakers for our cattle and garages for our cars. And I've even seen dogs wearing sweaters and earmuffs. And we put on heavy clothing to keep us warm and we wear light clothing to keep us cool. And the weather determines whether we go to school or work or church, mostly church. The weather affects us all, young and old. I sat up in the press box Friday night and watched it come down in torrents, just as you. And I just felt real sad because it just rained out the most important day of many young persons' life, the one they'd been looking forward to all year. I can remember as a little boy, my grandfather said to me, tomorrow, son, I'm going to take you fishing. I was so excited because my daddy didn't like to fish, and so I never got to go fishing, except when my grandfather took me, and he took me about twice a year. It was our semi-annual, our is it biannual, semi-annual fishing trip. And so I couldn't sleep that night waiting for the next day to come. And it was just like Christmas for me. But at 3 o'clock in the morning, a storm came rumbling through Knox County and just dumped three inches of rain on the countryside. I didn't think that much about it. Next morning, my mother said, Granddad will probably not come today, probably range all out. Lived way out in the country, no telephone. I sat out on the front porch waiting for my grandfather. I remember it just like it were yesterday. I sat out there on the porch waiting for him to come and literally worried myself physically ill because he didn't. The rain just destroyed my day. Hundreds and thousands of dollars are spent on the forecasting of weather. Pilots fly into the hurricane's eye just to test the, the velocity of the wind. And some of you don't go to bed at night until you see the weather forecast. Can't sleep till you get one more look at the sky. And so Jesus was right when he said, everybody understands the sign of the weather. But what about the signs of the times? We don't do so well with them. Jesus said, you hypocrites, you're able to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot read the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
And Jesus was hitting right at the heart of the matter when he said that. Because what those people, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not need was another sign. The signs of the times were everywhere. They were just blind to them. And so he speaks of a wicked and adulterous generation. That word adulterous generation does not refer to sexual sin. It refers to the spiritual adultery that is mentioned in Jeremiah and in Hosea and prominent in other Old Testament passages. It refers to the estrangement, the separation of the heart from God. It refers to the sin of forsaking the God who loves us, deserves and expects our love in return, and being married to the world, if you please. Now last Sunday we talked about the matter of sexual sin and the great concern of that. But let me tell you something about which I am a hundredfold more concerned. I am more concerned about the hundreds of people whose names are on this church row and every church row who have just forsaken God, who have separated themselves from Him, who have joined themselves in an allegiance and an alliance and a commitment with other gods, who have lost their first love, who have just left God. It was the sinful spirit of the time and it is ours. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees could not see the action of God because they were caught up in that sinful spirit of the time. And so it is today. There is plenty of evidence all around us that Jesus saves, that He changes lives. There are thousands of people all over this world who would stand today and testify in unison that Jesus makes something wonderfully different about a person's life. And yet an adulterous generation has no eyes to see that, no ears to hear that, because he's infected by the spirit of his age. He's engrossed in the material, the sensual and the secular, and his heart is empty of God. He's blind to the evidence and action of God. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 states, The God of this world hath blinded the eyes of the unbeliever, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should dawn upon them. Now Jesus talked about the signs of the times. Would you permit me to mention three that should be evident to everyone here? The first is the curse or sign of temporariness. It ought to be evident to everybody that this is a temporary world in which we live and our stay here is even more temporary. That's the rub for a man who lives only for the world. It passes away. It will not last. This life of ours is like a blade of grass. It withers and dies. It's like a horseman riding at full gallop across a shortened stage. It's like that puff of smoke that arises just for a moment when you strike the match and disappears. 
It's like a vapor that's there in the morning. When you turn around, it's evaporated and gone. He raced speedboats. He wanted to break the barrier, 300 mile an hour barrier. Then he was going to retire from racing. He revved his speedboat up to 310 miles an hour. Then in a freak explosion, that speedboat and Donald Campbell and all of his dreams just blew up, disintegrated. And a national magazine ran its picture. The hydroplane, the, the jet uh, boat, and all of Donald Campbell just going up in a puff of smoke. Raphael was painting his marvelous painting of the transfiguration. Right in the middle of it, he laid down his pen and died. And they took that half-finished portrait and they walked in front of the beer, in front of the casket, down Main Street as a mute testimony of the sign of the temporariness of life. And there's another indication that flashes with neon vividness this morning. That is fear. It's a part of this age. Fear. It's a tyrant that tears the peace from just about everybody's heart and life that's here today. Fear that if I'm fully known, I'll not be fully loved. And so we retreat in our turtle shells and we hide in our cones of silence behind our walls of isolation. The fear of failure, the fear of death, Matterlink confesses in his autobiography, I'm like a frightened child in the face of death. And those who are well, afraid of being sick, and those who are sick, afraid, they'll never be well. And if fear goes unchecked, it is able to magnify um, little molehills into what seems to be insurmountable mountains. And fear unchecked, makes little common pimples look like incurable skin cancers. But God has a release for fear. Isaiah lived in a war-torn, fear-filled age, but when he prayed, he gratefully said, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. And there is a third sign, I think, of the times that ought to be apparent to everybody here. It's the sign of the coming judgment. The twin curses of fear and temporariness seem to indicate that there's a judgment coming. But if you question that, you turn to the 20th chapter of Revelation sometime and listen to God describe it. And He said, And I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead which were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A few years ago when I lived in Seminole, Texas, they installed a tornado warning system and they put that thing right across the street from our house. And it was high up on this pole, great big old horn, and they tested it right one afternoon and you know we weren't that up to date on what was going to happen that thing went off now it you know it sounded worse than a tornado that'd scare you worse than the storm it'd make your hair stand on end when i heard that thing go off i got ready i moved i was on the move when that thing went off let me tell you the warnings of god have been sounding for two thousand years that there is a judgment of God coming, that men shall stand before His throne and the books will be opened and men will be judged. And those whose names are not found written in that book will be cast into the lake of fire. It's just there. It's the sign of the coming judgment. Are you ready for that? And then Jesus spoke to them about the sign of the way. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but to it no sign shall be given except the sign of Jonah. And in the 12th chapter of Matthew, verse 40, he explains the meaning of that statement. He said, just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want a sign from heaven? You're looking at one. I'm God's sign. I'm the indication of His love and His desire to save. I'll be put to death, an unjust death, and I'll be buried in the earth, a dead man. But on the third day, I will rise from the dead. That's the sign, the only sign you're going to get. And when I conquer death, I'll overcome, I'll defeat your fear. Because in overcoming death, I overcome fear of death. And so shall you if you commit your way to me. And he stood before a perplexed Thomas and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is Isaiah's ancient, he is Isaiah's Emmanuel, God with us. He is Daniel's ancient of days. He is Jonah's, he is Job's living redeemer. He is Joel's hope of the people. He is Hosea's growing lily. But Jesus is not just a way, a signpost pointing the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. He is no mere messenger. He is the marvelous Messiah. He is the subject of the Word. So when prophets predicted and apostles preached, they built their sermon around Jesus. There is no revelation beyond Him. He is God's last Word. He is God plain enough for everyone to see. He is God's message plain enough for everyone to hear. He is 
God's sign. And the warning is this, that if Jesus doesn't appeal to you, nothing will. If Jesus doesn't convince you, nothing can. If you can't see God in Jesus, you'll not see God in anything or anybody. For when men encounter Jesus Christ, they encounter God's last and final word, His ultimate appeal. So what happens to the person who flings aside his last chance, who refuses to listen to God's last word, who rejects God's ultimate appeal? What happens to a man like that? God is saying in the incarnation, here is everything I am. I've bared my soul to you in the fact of Jesus. If this doesn't break your will, then nothing can, nothing will. What happens to a man when he rejects God's final appeal? Well, Jesus gave us the answer. He told a parable. He said there was a man who bought some land and planted a vineyard and he cultivated it, and he took care of it, and he built a hedge around it. And he dug a hole for the wine vat and prepared it for the harvest, and he rented it out to stewards, to sharecroppers, if you please. And it came time for the harvest, and so the master of the vineyard sent the slave to gather the fruit of the harvest. When he came to gather it, the sharecroppers, the renters, stoned him. So he sent another. When this slave came to gather the harvest, the renters beat him, and so he sent another. And when they came to when he came to gather the fruits, they killed him. And Jesus said, and so he sent many others, underline it, many others, and they did the same. They killed them. And finally he said, last of all, I'll send my son. They'll, be, they'll surely hear him. They'll surely respond to him. And so he sent his own son. And when they saw him coming, they said, here comes the master's son. Let's kill him and we'll be done with the master once and for all. And they did. And the master of the vineyard destroyed the vineyard in his anger and he cast the renters out into outer darkness and everybody nearby knew what he was talking about. For God had sent the prophet and they'd stoned him. And he'd sent the prophet and they had stoned him. And he sent the messenger, even John the Baptist, and they put him to death. And last of all, underline it, last of all, he sent his son. And when they saw his son coming, they said, let's put him to death and we'll be done with God. And so they crucified him and they nailed him to the cross and they put him in the tomb, but they were not through with God. For he raised him from the dead, triumphantly from the dead, and met them head on in their rebellion. What happens to a man when God makes his last appeal and he rejects it? What happens to the man who, respond, who does not respond to God's ultimate word? He's cast out into outer darkness. That's the sign of the way. 
I read one time of a man, this story and I'm through, a bird watcher who loved to watch birds. And he was up in the side of this mountain watching, looking for birds, watching beautiful birds. And he saw this rare bird who, who, whose habitation is to dwell in caves in the side of the mountains. And so he saw this little bird going into this cave, this hole in the side of this mountain. He knew he had, that bird had a nest there. Oh, it was a rare find. He wanted pictures. He wanted to see it closely. But separating him from that cave was this deep and wide and treacherous chasm. How did he get, a, how would he get across from where he was to the cave? He surveyed the situation, determined this would be what he would do. This is his plan of action. He took a rope that he'd had in climbing. And he secured that rope there to a root of a tree hanging out, sticking out from the side of that mountain. And he secured it and strongly secured it. He wrapped it around his body and he swung out across that chasm to the hole, to the entrance of the cave and landed there in the, in the, in the cave entrance. He took his rope, now was attached across the way, across the chasm, to the other side of the mountain. He took his rope and secured it on the ground and turned to go into the cave. When he heard the tumbling of the rock down the side of the mountain into the crevice, and he knew and he turned and knew that the rock had, had fallen and the rope had become, had, had, had become unsecured and was swinging back across the chasm. In that instant, he knew his only way of escape was getting away from him. And he understood that that rope, like a pendulum, the first time it swung back, it would be closer to him then than any other time. He waited, and as it swung back, he leaped for it and grabbed it and was saved. And Jesus said, this is your sign. I am the Savior of the world. I am the Son of God. I am God's last appeal. If you reject me today, it may be the last opportunity you have to receive me. The time to respond to the love of God is the moment the love of God is presented. The time to respond to the deliverance of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin is the moment that deliverance is presented. He's closer to you now than He will ever be again. Now these are the signs. One of them you recognize. One of them you probably don't. But one of them you must. The sign of the way that Jesus is the way to God and to salvation. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, I pray that in this moment by faith we'll look to Jesus Christ as our salvation and our hope. And I pray that every unbeliever here now would turn to Jesus Christ for his salvation. 
this last appeal that comes, this final word, this ultimate appeal, that Jesus is the way, the only way to God. I pray that you'll help us to seize the opportunity when that opportunity is presented, lest it be everlastingly and eternally too late. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Now listen carefully to these invitations. Look here and listen carefully. The first invitation this morning is for you to come receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You have encountered Him this morning in this message. Jesus said, I want you to come and be my child. I want you to give your life to me. I want you to give your heart to me. I want to be your Savior. I shared the gospel Monday night with a man, and this was his statement. I'm not really ready to receive Christ, but I sure don't want to reject Him. And I said, if you don't receive Him, then you have just rejected Him. Now listen carefully. Hear me now. Since the Spirit of God dealing with the lost this morning, have you ever invited Jesus Christ into your life? Have you ever confessed Him as your Savior and Lord? Have you ever been saved, born again? Does Jesus Christ live in you? I'm not asking have you ever been baptized or are you a member of the church? Have you ever really received Christ as your personal Savior where you've actually prayed and invited Him into your heart? And you've confessed your need of Him. You've turned away from the life that you've been, where you've been in control. In faith, look toward Jesus. I want you to accept Him this morning as your Savior. I want you to be saved. This is God's ultimate appeal. The second invitation this morning is for you to come and place your life here if God has led you to place your life here. Realizing that these are urgent times and the signs of the time are indicative that the judgment is coming, that hell is moving. Would you come and place your life here to serve God in the fellowship of this church or to rededicate yourself? You are guilty of spiritual adultery. You've forsaken the God you love. You've lost your first love. You've, you've become estranged from God and you can't pray and you can't worship and you can't witness. Come to say, I want to do it all over again. I want to get right with God. These invitations I offer in the name of Jesus, your response is up to you. I'm praying that you'll come right on the first word as we stand to sing.